Good morning, Community Grace, and everyone tuning in this morning. Thanks for being here. I was uh, reading about the effects of the coronavirus quarantines and lockdowns and a variety of things. And like every topic, lots of things are being reported. I was zeroing in this week, though, on the topic of relationships, the lockdown's effects on relationships. Some is disheartening, like the increase in domestic violence. NBC News reports a 35% increase in domestic, reported domestic violence cases nationwide. The BBC reports a 49% increase in domestic violence in the last three weeks, this abuse that's happening in homes. Imagining what's going on inside of homes like this is heartbreaking. And I don't want any of that to go unaddressed out in our church family or in our community. Sources like Psychology Today offer some marriage advice as couples are spending more time together than usual, so much more these days. Here's some of the advice that they give. Things like, don't overreact to little annoyances. Keep things in perspective. Do home improvement projects together. Learn an instrument together. Remember that this will pass, this extra time together. Or this classic example from the author of one of the articles. He said, don't spend all your time together. Pick up a solo activity. For example, he writes, I've decided to take up pickleball because you can play it by yourself by hitting the ball against the wall. Wow, you know, what great marriage advice, right? Now, hitting a pickleball against the wall might be exactly what you need in your marriage. It might be. But there has to be better relationship advice out there than that, right? There is. And God has led us directly to that topic today. We are continuing in our sermon series in Colossians, which emphasizes the supremacy of Christ above all things, big and small and personal, and what it means to our everyday lives. Christ is greater than all, he's greater than all of it, and he's intimately involved in it. We are finishing chapter 3 today, where we have already, already spent two weeks immersed in the Apostle Paul's instructions for Christian living. How now in Christ, that we've been made alive in Christ, once we put our faith in him, and he gives us new spiritual life, now we put off that old person that we used to be, and put on the new person that he's making us. The magnificent creator and loving Lord Jesus Christ makes us spiritually alive and then begins to transform us in every way. Today, we are going to see how Jesus comes in and does that same thing, how he transforms our relationships, all of them. He changes marriage. He changes singleness. He changes relationships between parents and children. And he changes our relationships in the workplace. And that's where we go today. Because it isn't enough just to be a Christian by yourself. That's not what the calling is. But to be a Christian in relationships with other people. This new life has to work itself out in all areas of our lives. And frankly, Christianity is dead unless it's relational. So here we go. We come to instructions about our relationships at home and at work. What kind of wife does she become? 
What kind of husband does he become? What kind of child, young adult or single adult, do they become? What kind of workers and bosses do we become? And all of a sudden, the whole orientation of a society is dramatically transformed as Christ enters it through us as we are salt and light and followers of His, bringing compassion and His love into those relationships. So let's get started today. How does putting off the old self and putting on the new self in Christ affect each one of these relationships? How will Jesus change your relationships in your life? And starting today, let's look to the book, the Word of God, and see what it says. The first topic that we'll look at is how Jesus changes marriage and singleness. How Jesus changes marriage and singleness. Verses 18 and 19. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There are lots of really poor and destructive misunderstandings of the Bible's meaning on some of these categories. Let's look at them and get it right. The first thing we're going to look at with the Apostle Paul is wives, submit to your husbands, and let's get it right. So many misunderstandings, and they're destructive misunderstandings, whether it's out of ignorance because we don't know what the Bible actually says, or whether it's out of our sin. There's a lot of abuse and misunderstanding about this one. So let's get it right. Let's get it right. All family roles are required to show respect to each other and submit to each other and and proper respect. So Paul starts with the wives in this passage, but listen, husbands and kids out there, you listen as well because you need to know right now what kind of woman God is calling and equipping your mom or your wife to be as they follow Christ and walk with God. All right, so everybody's listening to this. Let me address some of those misunderstandings about this whole concept of submitting to your husband. All right, here are some things to clear up. First, the Bible does not say that all men are over all women. It doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that any one man lords over any one woman. Okay, that's false as well. The Bible does not say that a woman cannot be your boss at work. The Bible doesn't say that either. It does say married woman in the bonds of a covenantal relationship of marriage to one man submit to your own husband. This is a personal, intimate relationship. This is the man that you own your own husband. He is yours, your possession, and you are his. This is the beginning of the epitome of an intimate relationship. There's none like it in the rest of the world. This is the beginning of that, as we will see. Now, In these two verses, wives are told to submit to their husbands. In the book of Ephesians, which Paul also wrote, this is kind of a companion text to the book of Colossians, it adds respect their husbands. Okay, let's look at some of those verses in Ephesians 5, verses 22 and 23. 
where Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as that Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And then verse 25, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right, so we're seeing this intimate relationship, the most of intimate relationships develop. Husbands are told to love their wives, and wives are told to respect their husbands. Okay, we got that? See the difference there? Now, does that mean that husbands aren't to respect their wives and wives aren't to love their husbands? Is that what that means? Of course not. The Bible teaches those things as well. So why does Paul emphasize these commands, as he does in this text? The reason is because of what women and men are good at and bad at are different. We're different. And what men and women need to be fulfilled and brought to holiness is different. Okay, so this is the work of putting off the old self, the selfish nature that just wants to be gratified and served and pleased. This is the work in a marriage, an intimate relationship that we're putting on to put on Christ in our relationships, the new self he's given us. So what then is submission? What is it? We talked about some things that it's not. Here's what it is. It is voluntary yielding. It is tie-breaking authority. It is help. Understand this perfect picture of completeness God offers in marriage. Okay, the Bible names the husband of the head as the head and the wife as the helper. Now, this may not be the kind of helper that you're thinking of either, right? The Bible uses the word help most often to describe God, okay? He is our help, our strength in time of trouble. When Eve was created to be Adam's helper, it was, it was for a completion because this helper, listen to this, this helper is someone who has the power and the resources that the person being helped does not have. So see what God is building here. This concept of help meet. It's not help mate, it's help meet. This is a concept of God. It's a God-like helper, and this is unlike anything else in the world. Look what else verse 18 says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's what we're talking about here. This is not absolute obedience, as men in Paul's day were allowed to demand from their wives, because women and wives were considered property in the ancient world. Okay, but Paul is writing counter to his culture. He's countercultural, as the Word of God is. As fitting in the Lord also means that a wife isn't to follow her husband into sin. Okay, we're, we're submitting as fitting in the Lord. So if he wants to do anything that is directly against God's word, she's, of course, not to submit to that, but to appeal to the higher authority, which is God. All right, so there's power in that. Find, find that peace in submitting to the Lord, ultimately. And finally, submission also includes not undermining her husband by speaking badly of him to the kids or to other people. 
That's just something we don't do as we're following Christ. And he may be hard to live with. And he may have temptations and tendencies to sin, as we all do. He may be a real jerk. But she desires to honor the role and the person that God has given. God's given him a role and her a person and to honor Christ and to submit to him in the Lord is to not gossip about him or slander him. This is who God gave. So women who want to follow Christ to have Jesus change your relationships right now, what can you do? You can keep being in the Word and praying. Marriage takes a lot of work and a lot of prayer. But I'm going to encourage you too, if, if you need help and work in this area, find a mentor. There are so many women in the Community Grace family who have unlocked Jesus' instructions for happiness in their own marriages. And they have so much wisdom and experience and, th- and stories to teach you that you need. So reach out this week, okay? This is discipleship. This is being in a relationship as a church. And we'll see that command now reciprocated okay, from husbands towards their wives. So let's look at this command for the husbands, which is to love your wives. And there's a lot of error about this one too. So let's get it right. Husbands, love and get it right. Let's get it right right now. Paul had just told the wife to submit to her husband. Okay, so Paul's original readers might now expect Paul to tell the husband to give the orders and take charge of the family, right? But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he gives commands to love and not be harsh towards her. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Commands from God. Now, men, is it always easy to love your wives? Of course not. But remember God's instruction here. Receive God's instruction here. And it gets better as you give her love. Let's learn what this is to get it right. There's a lot of really poor and destructive understanding of love in our world. There's no doubt. In fact, our world doesn't hardly ever get it right. This love is not to be a, uh, merely a matter of affectionate feeling or of sexual attraction. Now, both of those are okay, but that is not what agape love is. So what is love as defined by Scripture, as defined by God throughout the Bible's pages and God's wisdom? Well, here's how it often plays out in marriages. And I want to I be clear about this so we all understand what's going on in our marriages. Because if we don't know any better, this is what happens right here. There's all this love before marriage, right? I mean, everything's just wonderful when you're together. You can't get enough of each other. Just, there's, there couldn't be anything better, right? So there's all this love before marriage. And then when marriage happens, you're on a ticking clock. It all just seems to drain away. Okay, this is because the world's definitions of love have become far too prominent. Even in Christians, right? This is what we have to put off, what we have to know about. The world's definitions of love have become too prominent in our lives. So, what even Christians often have before marriage is not love at all by God's definition. Here's what it is. 
infatuation. That's what it is. The man and the woman are infatuated with each other. And infatuation only lasts about 18 to 24 months. And then it's gone. Now, it may be longer if we have personal resolve to make it longer or a common mission that we share, but it's drifting away. That sensation of falling out of love that we can feel is technically the infatuation disappearing. Okay, that's not, that, that poor replacement for love, true love, is, is not going to get us through the decades and it's not going to make our marriages thrive like God's love, the choice to love, agape love is. So what is God's love that he tells us to love with? Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now we're getting a picture of what love is. One author puts it this way. The world takes us to a silver screen on which flickering images of passion and romance play and says, this is love. God takes us to the foot of a tree on which a naked and bloodied man hangs and says, this is love. Husbands, that is the picture of loving your wife. The Bible says of love that it is kind. It is pure. Pure. It's self-controlled. It is patient and faithful and restrained and so much more. And you, men, have the responsibility for her And to learn how to actively express this love, it's your responsibility to learn how to communicate to each other and to share thoughts and feelings with each other and what your needs are and get to discover those things and meet those needs to each other and pray over it all with each other. This is your responsibility to love her like this. And again, those steps of intimacy are growing There are tens of thousands of books on marriage in the age we live in right now. I could recommend a whole long list of them. I'm just going to recommend three if you want a place to start right now. Three that have been especially meaningful to my wife and I over the years. The Five Love Languages by Gary Thomas. His Needs, Her Needs by Willard Harley. And Love Defined by Clark and Baird. And any one of these books will bring you to just a lot of wisdom and harmony. And so I would encourage you to pick one of those up and start working on it. I used to have a thing back when we were uh, newlyweds. Praise God, I haven't needed this for uh, several years now, but uh, I just kind of made this an automatic default with me. If Sarah and I got into a fight of any kind, if our blood (laughs) uh, temperature rose at all for any reason, I would read a chapter in a marriage book. And it really worked. I had one right by my my bedside, and... uh, Because there's just so much wisdom in these things, and they're so helpful and constructive. And eventually, I didn't need to read that chapter anymore. So that was good. I would encourage you to have something like that. Here's the wisdom of the Word. And again, find help in the church too. Mentors, church leaders, if things are bad enough, you know, don't, don't hide those things away. So husbands, I need to ask, do you truly love your wife? Okay? Are you treating her properly? 
Are you caring for her diligently, working at it? Are you laying down your life and your rights for her? Are you battling against the temptations that remove your heart from her? Are you battling those temptations to be true to her and pure? Are you ensuring that she is growing spiritually? I had a friend years ago challenge a group of men that you need to always know where your Bible is, where your wife is reading in the Bible, always. And that just stuck. That is, that is our responsibility in loving our wives spirit, and leading them spiritually. Wives, are you trusting in God's design that submitting to, respecting your husband as the spiritual authority, are you doing that appropriately as is fitting in the Lord and trusting God that that is the secret of growth and fulfillment and trusting God in it? Are you willing to respect Christ by respecting your man and to make the sacrifices that requires? Respect and love in marriage will bring about the best possible happiness and holiness that life can possibly provide. And when you do that in Christ, by His instructions and His power, it best draws the world's attention to Jesus' love for us demonstrated on the cross of sacrifice. That's the power and the opportunity we have in marriage. It's hard, but God gives us the way and a lot of grace along the way. But an obvious question is, what if I'm not married? So let's address singleness and let's get it right. All right? There's a lot of distortions about this as well out in the world. So let's get it right. So a logical and pervading question follows for singles. Based on everything I've just said, here's a following question. I'm single. Does that mean I can't get completed? I mean, you just talked about this beautiful intimacy that God provided. Can I not get completed? Here's the Bible's answer. Okay, pay attention to this. The sanctification difference, and I'll explain what that is, the sanctification difference between being married and being single, that means your happiness, your completeness, your fulfillment, your holiness, your growing in God, all these things. The sanctification difference between being married and being single is a wash. There's no advantage in either one. Let me explain that. According to Scripture, it's a total trade-off. And get this right. If God calls you into marriage, that's the way He wants to grow you into completeness. That's your calling. Okay? But if God doesn't want you right now to be married, then listen. Jesus is the helper. Okay? Women, Jesus is the head. Men, Jesus is the helper. He is the perfection of both masculinity and femininity. God is more of a man and he's more of a woman than we could ever be. We're just pictures of him. So he says, regardless of where you are, come to me and I can complete you. If you're called into marriage and you're single right now, stop being scared of it. Okay? We live in a world that makes it just so pressure-packed. Stop being scared of it if that's your calling. Go for it. If you're not being called into marriage right now at this moment, stop wanting it so badly. And this is why. 
Because it is God who provides your sanctification right now, your completion, and you'll miss out on it if you don't turn to him. Now, young people, I want to give a word to you at this point. We're talking about relationships and intimacy, and I understand the culture that you're, you're coming up in very well, the hookup culture that you're growing up in, coming into adulthood in right now, has successfully done some very destructive things in our lives. The hookup culture has successfully separated the personal realm of your lives, the the spiritual and mental and emotional lives, from the physical realm of your lives, saying that they're totally different and unaffected by each other. Okay, And the, the world says that you can and should utilize the physical realm of your life, that is, sexual activity, Okay, as much as you want and expect no consequences to the other parts of your life. Okay, and that is an absolute destructive lie. It's totally false. We are holy and holistic people. Okay, so everything is connected by God's design. And this lie damages people over and over and over and over. Our culture's media, every time you open your phone or your computer or turn on the TV or go to a movie once they open again, right, be on, on the watch for this. Every time you start Netflix, man, we got rid of Netflix because there's too, too much trash on that. Here's what happens. This is the message. Even sex ed in school will tell you this very thing, that you can live however you want physically. Be active physically and stay, and you can stay uncommitted emotionally, spiritually, mentally, that you can detach those things, those parts of your lives. You cannot. You cannot. They are connected. Every part of you. The gift of intimate activity is is holy and it's holistic. It touches every part of you, and it's purposeful. It's given by God for a purpose and as a gift for glorified enjoyment and intimacy in marriage. So singles, I just want to make that very clear, that outside of marriage, let Christ reign in you and find your fulfillment and completeness in Him, not in your lusts, no matter what the messages of the world say. This is God's wisdom. 1 Corinthians 7 speaks at length to this special season in your life, and, and I'm going to encourage singles to really study those parts of 1 Corinthians 7, because you need to realize this, that you are able as a single to devote your whole self wholeheartedly to God and his calling in your life. This is a, a, an extremely special season in your life, and I don't want you to waste it with your worries and, and your regrets and your disappointments. This is an awesome time in your life, and the Apostle Paul makes that so clear in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if you need help in this area, of frustration or of purity, please, please contact a mentor in your life or somebody in the church. Pray and consult God's word through this. He will give you the wisdom and the power to get through this and, and the peace and fulfillment that you're looking for. Now, Paul has a word at this point to children and then to parents. So I want you to call all the children that have left the room now after talking about all that stuff Uh, They were totally disinterested in that, I know. Go ahead and call them back in. Children, come on back in the room. Yes, I'm visualizing my house at this point. Come on back in, kids, because 
We are a church family. The body of Christ is a family, a family of God. So Paul has a word to children and then to parents. That's our next topic, is how Jesus changes the parent-child relationships. Okay, as they're getting settled, let me, let me speak to the adults. When a culture essentially worships distortions of love, like ours does, it just worships that element of life, babies, here's what happens. Babies become the enemy, and abortions and abortifacients become the solution. Okay, that's our reality. Look at the numbers. And the reality, it's devastating. And that's what children become, a nuisance to be done away with. But what does the Bible say about children? Psalm 127 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, one of my favorite psalms. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children's of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So children are a blessing. So let's see Paul's instruction to children. You children are a blessing. Now we have a word for you. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. What did you just say? Obey your parents in everything? I'm going back to the other room. No, 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 stay here. Stay here. Let me, let me ask you this question first because I see some young people that might be thinking, yeah, he's not talking about me. What is a child? The word Paul uses here basically means anyone who is still living under their parents' authority, not completely out on their own independence yet. Aha, so that is some of you, isn't it? So children and young people who are living in your parents' home, now Paul is talking to you. And this is a special word to you. The Bible gives one overarching command by God that will bless your life and set your course, the, life, the course of your life out to its very best. Will you do this? Will you respond to God right here? One overarching command. It applied to me when I was younger, living in my parents' authority, and it applies to you now. It's very simple. Obey your parents in everything. This pleases the Lord. You mean even though my mom and dad are no longer cool? Even though they embarrass me? Even though they frustrate me? Even though I try to keep my friends at least 10 yards away from them? Yes. In spite of all those things, you have a command to obey them no matter what. That means no questioning, no challenging, and no knowing why. Now, the parents, of course, may explain the why because they are loving you and they're nurturing you and teaching you and, and explaining the why behind their commands to you. But your obedience does not depend on you knowing why. This is your command. This is what God directs you to for a fruitful life. The parents, I'll acknowledge, and this is important, kids, your parents may or may not, but they may command you to do something that goes against God. What do you do in that case? That's when, again, you appeal to the higher authority and you obey God and not your parents. And I know the sad reality is that 
That happens a lot, and you're faced with a, a difficult decision that you should never be faced with. But God gives you instruction on this as well. Your, your dad or your mom wants you to do something dishonest or harmful. That's when you choose to obey God rather than your dad or your mom. All right, this is hard. You can come get help, and God will help you too. Otherwise, otherwise obey everything, even if you don't like it or agree with it. Because this is well-pleasing to God, because it is his plan, it's his will for your life, and it's how the best course for your life is set. Obey your parents now, and your life is set up for success because of the character God develops in you. Now the word comes to the parents. Now kids, keep listening to this, all right? Parents, this is a ton of responsibility on you, isn't it? There's a ton of responsibility on, on us. So here's the word to fathers or parents. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Why fathers here? Why fathers? Well, in one sense, you could just scratch out the word fathers and write in parents because it's equally talking to fathers and mothers here, this wisdom. But as men carry the, the final spiritual responsibility and will stand before God, uh, answering it as husbands do, uh, so the fathers do as well. So he, he writes fathers. All right, so now what exactly does this text actually address? Do not provoke your children, or another translation, do not exasperate your children. Well, what in the world, world does that mean? What exactly is that? Lest they become discouraged. So this includes a lot of different things. So parents, listen up to, I'm going to give a few of them right now. Listen for some of these that you might do. And kids, you listen to some of these that your parents might need to do better at. Okay, here we go. The first one is overprotecting. These are some of the ways that you can provoke your children and discourage them. Overprotecting is one. So get this, helicopter parenting that's hovering over your kids in every detail of life will lead to rebellion. Okay, do we know that now? Can we acknowledge that? That will lead them to rebellion. Give them a sense of trust. But kids, trust can be lost very quickly. It takes a long time to build trust and only a moment to lose it. But parents, they've got to have trust and room from you before they're out of the house. Because once they're out of the house, if they've never had that, they'll go crazy. So that's one way that you can provoke your kids and discourage them is by overprotecting. Another one is favoritism. And I hope that none of the parents here that are listening to me will ever fall into this. Never. There's no place for it. Comparing one child to another constantly or loving one more than another, that crushes a kid and it disobeys God. Another one is mocking or deprecating them or depreciating their worth. Listen, even if things are said in joking towards your kids, there's so much power in the word of a parent. And I, and I want to ask you, is there really a place for sarcasm in this precious relationship? This precious relationship of honor and trust. Sarcasm destroys. Don't disobey the Lord in this area. Third is showing no affection. Never saying I love you, never hugging, never kissing appropriately, appropriate touch, picking up, squeezing in some affectionate way. It sends the message that they're not acceptable to you. That provokes a kid and discourages them. It sends a message that they're not worthy of your love. 
Please let's get rid of this behavior, especially men. Tell your kids you love them and show them. Next is not providing needs. Even in this society where there's wealth and affluence and stuff, children have needs. A little privacy, the care that they need, provisions that they need, like enough food and clean clothes, a place to study, a place to do work. Provide for their needs, lest you provoke them and discourage them. And then finally, my last one is over-discipline or anger. There is a part of adulthood that's dangerous, that little boy or girl inside of us that never actually grew up. But now we're big, strong adults that are very intimidating. All right? So if we've never grown up enough to have the self-control to be able to handle our daunting influence, we can destroy our children when we get offended ourselves. So do you do this? Yell, scream, berate. Use your brute strength to intimidate or overpower them. Okay, that's provoking to them, and it defeats them, and it disobeys God. That's just the last one I'll mention in this list. You could go on and on, and you can figure out many others from this list. Would you honestly analyze how you've ever crushed your kids' spirits? Give it over to God and stop. We can grow out of that. Well, we must go on as we get ready to close, to the third set of relationships that Jesus changes. And that is how Jesus changes relationships at work. Paul says work relationships are every bit as important to transform now that we're in Christ as any other relationship. Okay, so think about your, you at your workplaces and other places out in the world. You're not a Christ follower in, until... Every part of your life has been completely reoriented. So let's see what this challenge is. What does the Bible say about our work relationships? I'm going to read all these verses, verses 22 through 25, and then we'll look at each one of them individually. Paul writes, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Let's see what Paul means with these words. Now, bondservants, yes, that is slave. And just want to make this clear. Praise God that we live in an age where slavery has diminished as the dominant workforce. Now, I've researched this. I've read there are still estimates of 42 million slaves in the world, 1 million in America. That's another subject. That's an injustice that we can still, that pleases Christ to go after. But understand that in the ancient world, in all of the ancient world, slavery was the dominant employment system. Even doctors and professors would be in slavery. That's a, that's a fascinating study in history. So here's what Paul does as he brings the gospel into societies. What he does here in his letters to Christians who are operating in the system of slavery says this, Bondservants, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, how are you going to respond to that today, tomorrow, 
in the way that you relate to your boss, your master. Okay? Now, we've progressed quite a bit nowadays towards freedom, which honors God, and we want to continue uh, working on that. But we are still workers who, in according, who, according to God, owe our bosses this changed relationship. So let's learn from God these exact principles, which still 100% apply to us right now. Verse 22, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. It's very simple. If you are an employee, you are to obey everything. Sounds similar, right? This is following Christ. This is part of that sacrifice of following Christ. So it says not with eye service. What does that mean? It just means not just when your boss is looking, but with sincerity of heart, which is the kind of character that Jesus wants from us. Character, integrity, honesty. This is his calling to us. This is Christ-likeness in action. We've got to live this way. Now, verse 23 is one of the most important verses in the Bible for this realm of your life. And I apply this one all the time whenever I can think of it. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And it was such good timing this very week. I was on my way downstairs to my office to work on this exact spot in the sermon just a few days ago. And I, right before I went down the stairs, I pep-talked my daughter on this verse before she did school because she wasn't feeling like doing school. I said, do whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Okay? And it worked and encouraged her a little bit. And then I went down to do my work, and I realized I don't feel like doing my work either. So I gave myself this own little pep-talk too, and it did work. Praise God for this instruction. Your work is all for Jesus and his glory. Now you have that in mind, and you can do it. This is the way to do it. And verse 24 and 25 give us a positive and a negative reason for doing this. All right, first is the positive, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Listen, listen to this. Everybody who works needs to listen to this. The Lord will pay you. You might be underpaid and underappreciated and overworked and disrespected on your workplace. Okay, but someday God is going to reward you fittingly. That's sweet news. You're working for him in Christ. And whatever inequities and injustices there are, don't let those injustices against you dictate your behavior and your attitude at work because you're working for God, not that boss who's being unjust. God, and further, God uses your responses to that injustice, okay, to that discrimination or whatever, whatever it is, God uses your response, your gracious response to glorify himself and to grow you and to change the world. That's the salt and light that Christians are in a unique position to offer to the world that blow people's minds and change the world. We're working as unto the Lord, and he will repay you for all the things that you've earned. Then the negative reason, 
this is just an exclamation point on, on us all in verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Know that if you're not doing it, the Lord will discipline, and he is not impartial. The Christian worker will not presume, should not presume on his Christianity while he's doing a bad job as an excuse for poor work or a poor attitude. Don't do it. Jesus will pay you greatly one way or the other. All right? You're working for him. What a way to live. And then, of course, we want to honor our bosses, the people that are in authority over us. That's Christ-likeness. Now, a final word to masters, which are today bosses in our, in our town, bosses, managers, leaders, overseers, chairman of the board, whatever, whatever it is. Here's what God says to you. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you have any authority over anybody, this is for you. Who do you oversee? Let me ask you, have you mistreated them in any way? In any way? Have you been harsh? Have you ignored them? Have you not resolved that conflict that you should be resolving for them? Okay, have you not given them any of the dignity or communication or appreciation that they need? Follow Christ and give these things. What do you need to change and do this week for those who are under your authority? Maybe a thank you card. Maybe, like I said, having that tough conversation or resolving that conflict or advocating for them. You figure out what that is, those of you in that position. Now, friends, as we look back at how Jesus changes our relationships, consider this. In the New Testament times, in the ancient world, a wife with a new attitude A husband with this new attitude? Children with this new attitude? Parents with this new attitude towards their children? Slaves and masters with this new attitude together? I love reading in history how slaves and masters both came to Christ at the same time and what that did to their own dynamic. You know, if all that happened in the ancient world, it would be absolutely dramatic and shocking in society. And you know what? That's exactly what history said it was. Christianity began turning the world upside down. And it has. And it has the power to do that today. It will still do that in a society today that we live in where homes are falling apart, where marriage is scorned or a joke or just broken, where people in our communities can't believe that there's anybody happily married, where sex outside of marriage is rampant, and destructive. Where the culture at our workplaces, what's the culture at our workplaces? It's centered on complaining and griping and being entitled. We come in with a totally radical, different character, one that follows Christ. And your changes in relationships, in all these relationships, will shock and surprise every community and every workplace that we enter. It will glorify God. It will earn his reward. It will avoid his discipline. It will be much better for your life. And it may get worse in America overall before it gets better. But you and I know what to do. And you and I are God's plan A to bring goodness into the world. Will you follow Christ in all of your relationships? I just have one next step 
to close with right now. Just one. On the screen are the relationship areas that we've talked about. I just want to ask you to talk to God right now and identify the one or maybe the two that you need to work on right now. Today, this week, you need to make that call. You need to make that decision. Set those goals. Confess sins and apologize. Get help. You circle on, a, on your notes if you're taking them or in your mind if you're just looking at the screen. Pick one of the, or two of those where you need to work on. Now, you might just circle all of them. Who knows? We've got a lot of work to do if that's the case. We're here together. But you do that and commit that to God. And if you need help, don't be afraid to write that on your communication card online. Type it in, and we'll talk when it's ready. The church has a ton of resources uh, available here. You can take them home. We can talk about what those are. All right, will you do that? And we'll glorify Christ as we do. Let's pray and give this all to him. Lord God, I thank you for this text, just a handful of verses that represent so much of our lives. We've gone from the majesty of you over all the universe and how intimate you are into the depths of our souls and how that is working itself out now in every part of our lives. Our relationships is what you have for us this week. We're penned up in, in our homes. We're, we have weird stuff going on in our workplaces. If we, if we haven't lost our jobs, um, our neighbors, we have people who have different opinions on us or convictions on what to do with the coronavirus. Um, we have brokenness. Uh, Lord, we have the Holy Spirit. We have Christ that we're following. I pray that each and every person that's hearing these words will be convicted through your word by the Holy Spirit and radically transform ourselves, our relationships, and the world with this today. And we will thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.